When I was in high school, we had a friend at our high school that uh, we thought uh, could benefit from our youth group, and we invited him to attend uh, our meetings. And he professed uh, faith in Christ and was active in our youth group for about a month, and then suddenly stopped coming, and we asked him, what's up? And he said, well, I tried it, but it didn't work for me. It's good for you. It's not good for me. And I said, it's not like a try it, and if you like it, you can buy it kind of thing. It's, it's not that kind of relationship. You've misunderstood. My wife, uh, early in our marriage, was working in a medical clinic as uh, the first person you talk to, the person that you pay when you first come in and are asking to see the doctor. She noticed that some of the people that were coming in intending to uh, make a copayment had a credit on their account uh, because the insurance had paid and that they actually didn't owe money, but actually the medical clinic owed them money. And so she would tell the patient coming in, no, there's a credit on your account. The business manager overheard this, scolded her, and told her, do not tell them when there's a credit on their account. Have them pay every time they come in. And she stared right back at him, looked right in his eye, and said, I will not lie for you. His face turned angry, and you could tell he was about to fire her when she said, If I were to lie for you, how would you know when I am lying to you? Well, he went back to his office and thought about that for a while. And he thought about, I have an employee here who is promising never to lie to me. That's a valuable employee. So he came back down, calmed down, and announced to her, Go ahead and tell the truth. I appreciate the fact that I can trust you. He went back up to his office, and one of the other young ladies uh, sitting next to my wife, who had overheard the whole conversation, said, I'm a Christian too, but don't tell anybody. And my wife said, don't worry, I won't. (laughs) There's a huge problem in our churches in which we have people who are circulating among us who believe that they received the gift of salvation by faith and who are not saved because they have misunderstood how the offer is made and how the offer is received. And so they may sense... I'm a part of you when actually there is a severe danger that they are not. In our local assembly, we have a new believer who had spent his life in the largest group within Christendom as a very religious person, very sincere. But when presented with the gospel accurately, said, you know, I don't actually even feel forgiven for my sins. I sense no relief 
from my sins. And so by faith, he accepted the offer of Jesus Christ's payment on the cross for him. And he was radically changed and could sense immediately he was a different person. He came alive spiritually. His dead spirit that could not communicate with God at all was now alive. It was awakened and made new. He was given a whole new heart, which gave him a whole new disposition, a whole new propensity, a whole new desire to love the Lord and to please the Lord, not out of any kind of external performance that was being graded, but just out of a heart attitude of wanting to love the Lord. The Holy Spirit was placed in him, and the Spirit was prompting him and guiding him and helping him. He came to realize, my wife is not saved, my boys are not saved, but I must show Christ's love to them because they're still confused and they're worried about me. What happened to me? Why am I so different? Talking to him, he'd come and uh, explain to me his salvation, was asking me to baptize him in conversation. He was relating to me the peace that he felt in his heart that he never had before, that he could actually sense that his sins were taken away, that he was not guilty, that he'd been declared righteous, that he was clean before God and forgiven for, before God, and he longs for his wife and his boys to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. All his life, he viewed himself as a Christian. He practiced Christianity as a devoutly religious person. But he now has come to understand he never was saved until just recently. And to talk to him is like a spiritual vitamin to every single one of us of the joy of a new believer who is so excited about the security that he has in Jesus Christ. I'm reading from the book of James, chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. James 2, 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you don't give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you to, willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and a result of his works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, 
And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. There's a whole culture around us as to what it means for us to be, quote-unquote, a Christian. And in spite of the warnings in the Word of God regarding worldliness, regarding the world seeping into our understanding of Christianity and what it means to be a Christian, our churches are overwhelmingly influenced by the ungodly world around us. And consequently, the barometer that we have for evaluating who is a Christian and who is not a Christian, the way in which we describe how we gain relationship with God becomes confused and at times even polluted And the result is that we have people in our midst circulating in our youth groups, circulating in our churches who say, I'm a Christian. And who may find themselves sorely disappointed at the judgment. They'll be at the great white throne judgment and not the judgment seat of Christ. And so James, very practically, very early in New Testament Christianity, it's quite possible this is the first book in the New Testament to be written in the early to late 40s, long before Paul wrote Romans. And so Paul's exposition on justification by faith is talking about a completely different problem. And James is talking about people who say, hey, I have a relationship with God, And are sorely mistaken. And he says, look at yourself and see if there is any change. Because when God changes you, you'll be as different as the person that I just described. Who says, I can sense that I'm forgiven. I no longer feel guilty for the sins that I've committed. I feel clean before God. I feel forgiven before God. I talk to God and I commune back with him, his Holy Spirit to my human spirit. I sense God's work in my life. I hunger and I thirst after righteousness. We have dumbed down Christian expectations to the point that we've allowed far too many people to think They're secure for eternity when James says, hold on a sec. Let me ask you a few questions about your faith. Is there anything different about you at all? If God has touched you 
with his love, do you have love in your heart for others? Because if you can see a person right in front of you with obvious need and feel nothing in your heart toward them that would cause you to want to minister to them and to meet their needs right where they are, I have every reason to ask of you, are you sure you understood the gospel? And are you sure that you accepted the offer as Christ made it to you? You may be sorely mistaken. And the way in which he describes the issue is a dead faith. In modern vernacular, since we talk so much about fake news, you could call it a fake faith. And he says, a faith that is true, a faith that has actually succeeded in accepting the offer of Jesus Christ the way he has offered it to you, will change you because God will change your heart. He will give you, not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh, a heart that's soft towards him. God will give you a new spirit, a spirit that's alive in relationship to him. God himself will place his Holy Spirit in you. And you will be compelled to live differently in light of this. If you aren't, then we have to ask ourselves, was this real faith? He says, you're all talk. You're no walk. This is an empty boast. Now, he's not talking about the true nature of faith in the way in which Paul does in his letter to the Romans. He's emphasizing the false claim of faith. He says, can a non-working, dead, spurious faith save a person? And he says, no, it cannot. You should be able to see a difference in your life. Now, everybody always says, give me an example. And so he gives us a real-life example as a test. He says, If you see a brother or sister without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? The Apostle John also writes this way in 1 John chapter 3. In almost identical terms. It is a crystallized test for us. For us to say. Am I different? I have to feel compassion for people. Even for their most simple needs. My words of compassion. Without acts of compassion. Are worthless. So if we just talk the talk. And do not walk the walk, we have every reason to say, have I truly been changed? Are my sins forgiven? And the way in which he describes this is to say, this faith is an abortion. This faith is dead. This faith has no works. It's a workless faith that is a worthless faith that is unproductive, sterile, barren, dead. 
you're making a false claim. In some of our common terminology is a false profession. Some of us are careful when a person announces, I've come to Christ. We call it a profession of faith. Why do we say that? Because we're looking to see if the fruit of the Spirit is coming through the person's life. We're actually looking to see a difference in the person's life. We're not trying to be fruit inspectors, but we're trying to help a person make sure that he's actually received the gift of eternal life. Verse 18, James imagines a respondent who disparages faith and exaggerates works and goes too far. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. James cautions us and says, I'm not saying that works are essential to faith. I'm saying that works are the evidence of faith. In other words, we don't do anything to receive the gift of salvation. It would not be a gift unless we could not earn it and that we received it freely as a gift. However, to know that we've received something genuine and not fake, I was buying tickets through Ticketmaster recently, and they were warning us as I was buying genuine tickets from Ticketmaster, watch out for fraudulent tickets. And they started naming off the various venues and concerts. I wasn't going to a concert, I was going to the fireworks. That you could suspect that you might have a counterfeit ticket. It's interesting to think that people who say, I've got my ticket, may actually have something that's counterfeit. He's saying, don't say that you earn your way into God's favor. It is a free gift. But don't exaggerate the works either. He says, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. It's the evidence of the fact that my faith is real. And interestingly, he says, you say you're monotheistic. That doesn't mean that much because even the demons have that theology correctly. You believe God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. It's a lazy, idle faith, a fraudulent faith, a sham. Genuine faith truly will be accompanied by evidence. Spiritual works are the evidence, not the energizer of sincere faith. You say, I'm still slightly confused. Can you give me examples? And so he says, Take Abraham and the difference between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. In Genesis 15, God just straight out declares, Abraham believes in me, therefore I will declare him righteous. And you say like, I was a little nervous about his faith because I thought he wavered a little bit. And I remember him lying and stuff and I'm kind of scared that he really is changed. But hey, you said it. And James says, 
Yes, he was declared righteous, justified in a Pauline sense in Genesis 15. Hey, but did you read Genesis 22? That's the vindication of any doubt that we had that when God declared him righteous, he truly was a different person. Here's his example, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? That's Genesis 22. You see that faith was working with his works. As a result of the works, faith was perfected in the sense that it was brought to its end, its fullness, its purpose. Jesus loves to point to trees and the fruit on those trees. The tree arrives at its purpose, at its fulfillment, at its goal, when it produces fruit. And if he sees a fig tree, for example, that won't bear fruit, he's saying, what use is that? He is pointing out to us that even from nature and the things that we see around us, we can see that there is a goal and a purpose as to why he has saved us. He's expecting us to act differently. Abram struggled with the idea that God would give him and Sarai a child in their old age. It just seemed so impossible. And it was taking a while, and so he and his wife conspired together to solve God's problem in their own effort. And they produced the war between the Israelites and the Arabs. God said, no, I will give you a miraculous son. And he gave him Isaac. But in the difference between chapter 15 and chapter 22, God says to him, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love. Also, as Abram is thinking about this, he's saying, wait a second, this is the son of promise. This is the son through whom I will become a great nation. This is the son through whom Every nation on the earth will be blessed. Take this son, the son whom you love, your only son, and give him back to me as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And so he gets up early in the morning and goes and does it. We would not have known in his mind exactly how he thought this was going to work except for the phrase, God himself will provide the sacrifice, my son. And the writer to the Hebrews who said, well, I guess he's just going to have to raise him from the dead because this is the son of promise and through him there will be a great nation. And you can see that he is so changed, so different from what we saw in him earlier in his life that we would say, yes, he is a hero of faith now because he's living out what he actually believes. You can see the change in him. James's conclusion, verse 24, as you see that a man is, you could translate this, vindicated in a sense, or he uses the word justified, but he's using it in a different sense than Paul does. He's vindicated by works because faith alone has yet to prove itself. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we usually stop after verses 8 and 9, and we uh, seldom read to verse 10. But there actually is another verse. 
this is a common problem we have when we memorize, is we forget what the next verse says. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is actually the basis of our salvation. Faith is the means of our salvation, the way in which we reach out and receive what was accomplished to us by grace. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, that's the source, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Clear as day. But then look at what he says next. He just said we're not saved by works, but he says, but we are his workmanship, his poem, his work of art created in Christ Jesus for good works, meaning that we're created to perform good works after we are saved without works. See, Paul doesn't disagree with James. They're saying the same thing if you read them in context. In fact, these good works that we will perform, God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. They're specific works that were designed for us according to the way in which he made us and the way in which he gifted us and the manner in which he plans to use us. His second illustration, James chapter 2, verse 25. This illustration is completely different. She's a Gentile, a woman, a pagan, a prostitute, completely different than the patriarch Abraham. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Rahab believed that God had given the land of Canaan where she was living to the Israelites. And she remembers what God did to Pharaoh in Egypt. And so she acted on that faith and traded sides and decided to side with the one true God. And by acting by faith, she sent the spies out another way at her great personal risk and protected those messengers of God. And whereas you might have said, can we trust this woman? Is she for real? James is saying, well, look what she did. Her act didn't save her. It was her faith and her belief in God and her desire to entrust herself to God. But she demonstrated that validated that, vindicated that by her actions. So we must be who God wants us to be and do what God wants us to do. So you would say, how can I tell how well I'm doing in this process of demonstrating that I have genuine faith and that God is at work in my life. James goes back to the tongue. And in Jewish thinking, they often took a part of the body and used it as a picture of the whole. And he says, our tongue is a window into our souls. And we can actually use this tongue to look right down inside of you and see the well within inside of you and what is coming out of your soul. Do you remember when I said that we in our churches tolerate too much worldliness? I know so many Christians who in their language 
use the F word, the S word, the C word, the N word, the G word, the OMG phrase. Not careful at all, just completely worldly. When I challenge them, they say, well, everybody speaks that way. Well, yeah, everybody you're hanging with, but these things do not glorify God. When we criticize other people, when we judge other people, when we slander other people, when we gossip about other people, where is this coming through? It's coming through our mouths. So if we say to ourselves, hey, I passed the test in the first half of this chapter, well, let's go to the doctor and let him look in our mouth and let him see how our tongue is affecting our Christian walk. Teachers seem to have some level of admiration among people, and so there seems to be a competition to want to be teachers. And Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. It just makes sense that if a teacher professes to have a clear understanding of the Scripture's teaching, he's all the more likely to be held accountable to live it out. James says, We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. The concept of the bridle is the concept of holding back a huge animal like a horse and causing it to do exactly what you want it to do. Recently, there was a contest for the ugliest dog. The dog that won had a tongue that fell out of its mouth so far that it touched the ground and he could actually step on it unfortunately he's now dead he won like a month ago and has now died but james is saying our dangling tongue can trip us up faster than we realize and an area in which we could really grow quickly is bridling our tongue if we were able to do so we would be so-called perfect, complete, mature, full of moral and spiritual growth, we would show ourselves as genuine Christians. To say how easy this is, he says, it only takes a small choice. A choice to say, I will bite my tongue. I will bite my tongue. I will not say those words. I had an argument, a guy was using the N-word about a brother in Christ. And he says, oh, no, he accepts it. He understands it. He knows what I mean by it. And I kept saying to him, you can't use that word. It is hurtful. It is harmful. I don't care what he's saying back to you. You can't say that word. We went on for a half an hour of him arguing that between the two of them, they understood how it was going and what it meant to them. And I was saying, absolutely not. These words are so offensive. These words are so impactful. You have no right to utter these words at all. He needs to put a bit into his mouth, just like a person with a small bit can control a mighty horse and cause it to obey him. And in the same way, we need 
to control our whole bodies. Verse 4, he says, Look at ships also, though they're so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. You can turn a boat by something so small. In the same way, he says, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. I confronted a vice president who worked for me, who'd made what I consider to be a poor decision. And he thought, well, I'm just not going to take this. So he stood up from behind his desk. He picked up the books that were on top of his desk. He threw them down on the desk as hard as he could. And then he lashed out to me with profanity. That's the way he dealt with other people in business. And that's the way he was going to deal with me. This person later was asked to be an elder of his church. And they called me up and they said, what is your recommendation? On the basis of James, what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to say? Because James says, at the most basic, we should be able to control our tongues. Because if we can control our tongues, then we can begin to allow the Holy Spirit to control the rest of us as well. Read through the fruit of the Spirit. What's the capstone at the end? It is self-control, meaning that the Holy Spirit can actually aid us so that we don't do what we say to other people we had no ability to control. That's a lie. That's a lie to, that we lie to ourselves about and the a lie that we lie to other people about saying like, I just don't have self-control. And this is not tolerable. This is like Christianity 101. He's just saying you can't go far in Christianity if you won't control what you say. A brother who wants to grow in leadership in a local church is counseling with me and he says, My problem is my wife. And he says, what she does and what she says just gets to me. And then I lash out with words that disqualify me for leadership in the church. What do I do? So I place that before you. And what's our problem? Our problem is we are allowing our old sin nature to dominate us when the power over it has been broken. And that we can choose, and that's all that's required of us, choose to obey God at this point. And the empowerment to actually succeed in controlling our tongue comes from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So all you have to do is choose and the empowerment is from the spirit. And he builds within you character traits that are Christ-like that make it easier and easier for you to obey because the dominant nature within you 
becomes stronger and stronger and finds it more and more likely that it will quickly choose what is right rather than what is wrong. We don't realize how fast we can burn our whole church down just with our tongues. The tongue is a fire, verse 6, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But it seems like no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. It is a deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. There used to be a person in an assembly I was part of that every Sunday morning, rather than leading us corporately in worship, he would get up and confess his own personal sins publicly. And I thought, like, he's just such a sincere brother. He just wants to express himself before God as completely humble. You know what I found out years later? He was sinning horribly every Saturday night and yet wanted to verbally participate in the breaking of bread on Sunday morning and so he would get up and publicly confess. Back and forth every week, sinning horribly and wanting to be a leader in the church. Listen to what he's saying, he says, How can we bless the Lord with our tongue and then turn around and curse men who've been made in the likeness of God? From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. Does a fountain send out the same water from the same opening, both fresh and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh water? No. If we can't control our tongues, we're not going to control any other aspect of our lives. So if he says, the simplest thing is if you see a person right there in front of you who's cold and needs a coat and you have a coat you could give him, you can't say to him, be warm and filled and go in peace. You can't say to him, someone else will take care of you. We are obligated to meet the needs of those in our sphere of influence to show christ-like acts of compassion not just words of compassion and similarly we are absolutely held accountable for the words that we say i learned as a little kid on the playground sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me lie lie lie. Let's pray. Father, we come before you asking for repentance in our hearts to learn to allow the Spirit to control our lives in a way that would be pleasing to you. We think of the gossip. We think of the slander. We think of the lies we've heard. We think of the profanity we've heard. We think of the coarse jesting that we've heard. Oh, Father, convict us by your Spirit. Enable us through the power of your Spirit to choose and to succeed in bridling our tongues.
Father, there are those among us who may struggle with the understanding of whether they genuinely have accepted the gift of salvation or whether they're trying to earn it by their works. Help them to understand the truth. There are others who believe themselves to be saved but are sorely mistaken. Help them to understand the truth. Guide us, Father, as we seek to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. For we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.